Let's pray, and then we're going to look at Mark 14, 22 through 26. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have all things in control. There is nothing outside of your hand that takes place. You tell us you know when a sparrow falls to the ground. How much greater are we to you than a sparrow? What a great reminder, Lord. And so many here this morning at this early service, trusting you and realizing that you have their days numbered. You know them. You know them by name. Lord Jesus, you died for each and one of us, and you knew us when you died for us. How could you not know us during these difficult times? And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and we're so grateful. Lord, we're thankful for the institution of the Lord's table, changing from one old covenant that, that could not save us, but merely pointed toward this brand new covenant that was coming, a covenant ratified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for all of time. And so, Lord, as we look at this, we ask that you would strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us, Lord, to remember correctly what you have done. And then, Lord, we will practice remembering you. And Lord, we pray that you would pierce our hearts with that truth and cause us to love you all the more, Lord. Father, we thank you for VBS this week. We're so grateful for the children that heard the gospel. Thank you for Josh who explained it so clearly, Lord. We thank you for your spirit that we know carries that truth to these children and families. Lord, we pray for for uh, camp coming. Our youth camp is excited. So many people signed up. So many workers ready to go and help, Lord. We pray that you would protect that camp. You would allow this to take place, Lord, for your glory. And that children and young people would be challenged, Lord, to know you. And then to walk with you in a way that's pleasing to you and good for them, Lord. So, Lord, please do a great work there as well. Lord, now as we turn to your word, may your spirit take these truths and pierce our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I had Brian uh, read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32, because uh, that's where the, institute of, the institution of the Lord's table got put in place into the church. But our passage is Mark chapter 14, 22 through 26. And I just want to read, it's just a few verses that we're going to cover today, and then we will... Uh, practice the Lord's table and remember what Christ has done. Mark chapter 14, verse 22 through 26 reads this way. While they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, take eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never drink, never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, the Lord's table is one of the most purest forms of worship that the church takes uh, great pleasure in participating in. It's especially when we understand what the table is about, especially when we see the misuses of it, but realize in our own personal relationship with Christ what the table represents. Oh, it's a glorious thing. It's a, it's a, it's a worship free of any works. 
It's a memorial and a remembrance. It's, it's spirit-led. The spirit loves the table because it highlights the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look closely at the table, we realize this is the ushering in of a new covenant. The old covenant has been fulfilled. The old covenant is done. Praise God. The new covenant is here. And it's ratified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, there is no greater event in a believer's life than the correct understanding of the Lord's table. It's been misused down through Christendom, both from, from Orthodox and, and Protestant to, the, to Catholic. It's been misused. But when we, who understand salvation by grace alone, come to the table, it is one of the most glorious events we participate in. And something I look forward to each and every month as we celebrate those things. Well, I want to give you just three thoughts this morning from this text. And then we will take the table together. Number one, and there's some particular wording here that you'll see in this address. The presence of the bread of life. The presence of the bread of life. Look at verse 22 with me. While they were eating, he took some bread. That's Jesus. The bread of life. He takes some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Well, all four gospels record this. That's not, not always the case in every event of Jesus' life. But in this particular event, all four gospels record this. John 13, 30, around there, it's told us that Judas has now left. He's not part of this group anymore and it's just the 11. And I want you to think about this. He's cleared out the betrayer he now has in his presence the 11 men who are going to be used for the birth of the church. And once, once those who don't believe, who are not part of his true kingdom, are gone, he sets out the ordained, God-ordained method of worship to these 11. It is a fascinating thing that he did. And though he washed the feet of, of Judas, and Judas heard a lot of the teaching and instruction, when it came down to this picture of the finished work of Christ, which is the basis of foundation of the church, he removes the betrayer and he talks to his 11. And I think that's fascinating. Now, Jesus knew he was about ready to transform the Passover that they had celebrated down through time into the Lord's Supper. And, and this is amazing because it signals a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And that's great news. That is tremendous news. We're not here this morning offering our lambs or our pigeons or our turtle doves. We're not here offering our grain offerings because Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And he is ushering that in now. No longer is that going to be needed. You will look to him as your perfect sacrifice. And think about it, the transition is taking place and these words are coming from the final lamb himself. I am the final lamb. What an amazing thought. And remember, all, all of the Old Testament law and symbols and ceremonies and sacrifices and so forth, they were all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus and there in Luke chapter 24 in several places, two at least in that passage, where he says, look, all of these Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of them speak of me and I am the fulfillment of them. So, so here's, 
Here's the scene. It's there. He's now about ready to, to move, bring fulfillment to that old covenant, to, to complete it and usher in the new one. We'll notice in the text this present tense language. It tells us that this meal has been in progress. They've eaten probably the Passover lamb now. And Jesus is, he's, he's instituting this Lord's Supper. And, and notice he, he use, utilizes what's on the table. He, he's not there to clear the table and start a new meal. He's utilizing what's there. And, and so he's ushering in this redemptive history, right? This has been the history. This is all pointing towards Christ. And so he's using that meal to teach this new covenant. And in fact, this was the end of the central purpose of the Passover meal. And I know for some may hear that and go, oh, well, Passover is such an important thing. It was all pointing towards Christ. Why, why would we want to go back? Yes, he freed the nation of Israel and taught them to sweep out their houses of sin, and I think that's still relevant, and I'll I'll show that in 1 Corinthians this morning, but that was all pointing to a greater thing. And I think, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, there's so many people who want to live in the past because that's where they they can usher in their works. They can feel good about doing something. Oh, the new covenant is about what Christ did, not us. And that's what he's about to do here. I do believe the Passover has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ completely. And it doesn't mean that there's no importance to, to the Passover. In fact, Paul uses it to teach great lessons. First Corinthians chapter five, difficult passage of immorality in the church and them not dealing with it. In fact, the context just is all about sexual immorality and how it defiles the church and that Christ, Christ should be worthy of our purity, right? of our striving to live for him. He should be our motivation to live for him. And that's what Paul's trying to do. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 7, as he's dealing with this sin issue in the church, he says, clean out the old leaven. Remember I told you the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were really tied together. You could not separate them. So he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. And then he says this, for Christ our for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Apostle Paul did not go back. He went forward. He saw the Passover as Christ. That he, he didn't see it any other way. And he, and he spoke in those terms. Well, notice in the verse, the Lord has bread in his hand. And this was a thin, unleavened cake that was found at all the Passover tables. And, and notice that Jesus takes this bread and he utters a benediction, a blessing. It's a, it's a form of thanksgiving. Now the disciples had seen him do this before. In chapter six of John, he had the fish and the loaves, right? And there he held them up. And same words used there, that he blessed that and he, and he gave thanksgiving to God for those things. So the words which the Lord uses in this blessing and prayer and thanksgiving are to honor God to honor God that he has done this. It's fascinating because he's the bread of life, right? Present tense, present, the, pre, the bread of life is present with them and he's handing them bread as representing him, right? And so this, this scene is so blessed because there he says, Lord, thank you for this. Well, it's him, <laughs> but it's the plan of God. Now, now, the Bible does not record in any of the gospel accounts what he prayed, 
And I thank the Lord for that. <laughs> Could you imagine the religious people who get a hold of that prayer? They struggle with the Lord's prayer, right, in a lot of ways. It gets misused in, 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 for what it was really intended to do. So the, the, the prayer, this prayer blessing is not recorded anywhere in the Bible. Now the Jews, their prayers at this time in the Passover were filled with the remembrance of God delivering them. But I think, uh, this is my thoughts here, I think Jesus probably connected the deliverance of God with the nation of Israel to his deliverance, what he's about to do. I imagine he did that. See, that was what he was all about, right? I've come to do my Father's will. What was that? To die. To be a substitute. To be the scapegoat, the Passover lamb. The one who would take our place, take our punishment, take our deserving wages of death. And so doubtlessly, his prayer was probably filled with that. As he thought, think about, as he thought about every tribe, tongue, people, group, as he thought about all of his elect that he would draw to himself, that he promised to lose none of them. Now, Jesus is doing a definite act here. It's, 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 he takes this bread and he breaks it, right? He, he's right in front of them. The, t- the scene is on the Lord Jesus as you look at this in this text. Now, the breaking of bread was for the purpose of distributing it, right? Because we know the Bible teaches that no bones were broken, and sometimes that gets a little poorly illustrated. But I, I, I think it's probably, also could be, because <laughs> I don't know this for sure, but it may represent Isaiah chapter 53. There, Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings, we are healed. And so, though Jesus, no bones were broken because they came to him in John 19, and he was already dead, and they did not break the bones of his legs, but yet the Bible teaches us that he was crushed for our iniquities. Many, many, for many years, in some of our smaller churches, as I would do communion, we would have an unleavened wafer, uh, a large wafer, and I would wrap that in a, in a cloth, and I would crush that in front of our people, and then we would distribute it. And I would read these verses, because the, the weight of our sin fell upon him, and I think there is a symbolic nature to that. And yet we don't die on that hill, do we? And now it's COVID, so I can't do that anymore. Because uh, <laughs> we can't touch anything. But he was crushed for our iniquities. And, and this is what's happening here. This, this scene is being played out. And though the disciples do not fully understand this yet, Peter, we're going to see next week, is going to argue with Jesus that there's no way Jesus is going to die. He'll die with him if he has to. They don't get it yet. Tell his death, burial, and resurrection in the presence of the Holy Spirit upon them. He's come to die. Notice the text says, take it, this is my body. The eating of this unleavened bread was a reminder, first of all, of the nation's departure from Egypt, right? And there was a removing of the corrupting influence of Egypt, its sins and its idolatry and worldliness. But the Lord's table was bread that was, was a new meaning now. It was a new meaning. The bread now served as a representation of his body. It was a memorial in a sense which he would soon offer his body, listen, as a sacrifice that would be so pleasing to the Father he would accept it for all those who ever believed in him. What an amazing sacrifice. 
The disciples were, notice they were each given a piece of this same bread. So he, he took, it seems to be one loaf, one unleavened cake or some kind of wafer of some sort. He breaks that wafer and he gives it to the disciples. And I think there's several things that this symbolizes. One, this is a unity in Christ. We're unified. Christ died for us all. And when we take this, there's a, sim, there's a symbol of unity. We, as a church that meets at Riverbend Community Church in this building, we are united that Jesus died for us, that his body uh, was hung on a tree. He bodily died for us. Father judged him for our sins. We, we, it unifies us, doesn't it? We don't have a multiple meanings. Well, you, this group believes one thing about the bread and this group another thing and so forth. No, no, no. He's the bread of life. And so I think there's unity in that text. But I also, and I want you to get this, and this is the point of this first point, is that there's this continual presence with them. I think he's reminding them, and I think they realize this after they received the Spirit, that that was a teaching that I'm always going to be with you. And you're going to see that more in this text as we go along. I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you. I'm not only your sacrifice, but I will be in your presence. I will remain with you. See, this reminder of Christ's sacrifice was to be recalled every time they broke bread. Every time they broke bread. Now, I, I don't know about you. There's times where maybe I'm having a meal with some people and we're out at some Italian restaurant or something and we're tearing bread apart and dipping it and doing that. I just can't help but think of this text, can you? I mean, as Christians, we think of that stuff, don't we? But, but particularly when it comes to the to the meal, and this is where we want to do our work today for our, our thinking here, is when this comes to this meal, there should be nothing else in our minds but the glorious Christ. And yes, you say, well, Scott, what about confession and repentance and things like that? Well, you, you think about Christ enough, you will confess some things, I promise you. You come up against his glory, but you do not want to be consumed with you when you come to the table. You want to be consumed with the bread, the bread of life, the one would be with you. I think it's fascinating that Jesus is giving them the gift of his presence. Remember he told them in John chapter 13 he went down this list of things that are going to happen to him. He's going to be delivered and these evil men are going to kill him and so forth and they begin to get nervous in John 14 he opens up this way he says do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on to say for in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place with you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. He is constantly talking about his presence with him. One of the things the table does for us it reminds us that the Lord is with us. In the most difficult times the most challenging times the most times of blessing he is with us. And we thank thankful for it. I think it also anticipates his resurrection. He's the living bread. <laughs> He's alive. And, and it reminds us that he is not going to stay dead. There's a fuller plan to it. And we'll look at that in just a moment. They also indicate the Lord's intention of his table to be observed perpetually. Luke chapter 22 records this, verse 19. It says, this is my body which is given to you. And then this is where he adds this phrase. It's not in Mark. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and that's what Brian, Pastor Brian read today in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. The apostle Paul picks up on this and says, look, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. M many of us grew up with tables down in front in our churches. And what did it say on this? Do this in remembrance of me. It was a reminder. 
we constantly remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. Now we all know that the Roman Catholic Church and many offshoots have twisted the Lord's words here. And they, they've taken the table and abused it. In reality, they've just perverted this beautiful remembrance into some bizarre practice of, of taking the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It, it, it's so, so foreign to the scriptures. That it's against the law of God, let alone what he was trying to teach there. But listen, clearly Jesus was speaking in figurative terms here, right? He does this all the time. Disciples were familiar with this. He did it on many occasions. In John chapter two, he says, um, in three days, I'm gonna destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. Well, well, see, people who think works, they go, hey, that took a lot of years for Herod to build that thing. Well, what, what do you mean? How are you gonna rebuild this? See, they're always religious people. People who don't love Christ always think in works t- works philosophy and Jesus was talking about his body and you and I read that passage and we go he's talking about his body see the difference he calls himself the door well do we see Jesus as a door I I see him as the gateway to to the father right but we don't see him as a door he he uses other terms uh, I am the the bread of life Uh, he wasn't a loaf he was a sustaining grace of God in our lives, isn't he? And he, I'm the vine. These were all figurative terms. So clearly Jesus in the upper room should be understood in this figurative language. And, and unfortunately, so many religious works-based groups choose to insert their own human faith and come up with false views of it. And you can just see that happen over and over look, it seems obvious the disciples understood he wasn't saying, eat literally my body and drink my blood. They were familiar with this. Look, the bread which has been given to them, it, it stood symbolically of his body. He bodily was here. He wasn't some mystical spirit that showed up and hung on the cross. He bodily was here. God judged him. His marks are still on him. When you see him, you will see his marks. He is still dressed in humanity, still fully God, but yet you will see him. He is our elder brother. He is our representative. And so this body is such a beautiful thing, and we remember that by taking the bread. Look with me now, the second thought. The cup in Christ's satisfying finished work of a new covenant. The cup in Christ's satisfying finished work of the new covenant, look at verse 23 with me. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Now the cup of, the cup or or cup of thanksgiving or blessing it's often referred to was the second part of the Lord's Supper that he's instituting that night. And and, and in the Mishnah, if you look back, and there's at least four cups that they drank from that night. But Jesus, he, 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 if he's following that late Passover ritual, then he's, he's probably at that third cup. They've probably finished the meal of the Passover lamb, and now he's on that third cup. Luke twenty two twenty says that after they had eaten, he took this cup. And, and think about this. Is it called the cup of blessing? Could there be any greater blessing than what Christ is about ready to do? 
I mean, I just get excited. As I keep working towards the cross, I, I, I keep sneaking farther ahead to see how Mark's going to do it. I've read it a million times, but I, I get so excited. Because he's going to the cross. And, and what greater cup of blessing for him to drink the wrath of God in our place. And to be able to drink that. What a great blessing. Notice he gives thanks in the text. We get the term Eucharist from this. Another mishandling of that term. It simply is this idea of great thanksgiving. And Jesus said, now turn the Passover supper into this ultimate feast of thanksgiving. And that's why when I came, I, I think you guys, some of you picked it up. At least some of you kids said, we love communion. We love the Lord's table with you. Because I, I, I love to celebrate it. Yes, there are things we have to deal with at times. And, and I think when you come face to face with the glory of Christ and you begin to think about it as you hold that bread and cup in your hand, you think through these things and you go, Lord, there's a few things I need to talk to you about. That may happen with you. But communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper is a celebration of thanksgiving for what he did for us. And it's glorious to us as Christians. We shouldn't miss that. Notice that he gave it to them and they all drank and it seems that maybe there was one cup and it was passed around and again we won't be doing this not just because of COVID but I don't want to drink after you. Um, <laughs> I've had to do that over in third world. Uh, learn not to sit in the back row when that happens. Um, get up in the front early. Uh, uh, get a sip of that early. Um, <laughs> a lot of you are squamish now. Um, but they seem to be holding this cup. And, and notice it says all. And it, I think this all just stands emphatically. It stresses that all 11 were drinking from it. All of them were seeing that Jesus was teaching them something new about this Passover. They may not have full, fully understood it. And it's, and it's and it, what they'll understand shortly after this. But that they're taking it and they're drinking it. And here's these 11, the men that are going to go out and preach the gospel. And the church is going to be birthed. They all drank of this cup. And the old... Testament and the old covenant drinking of blood was forbidden so we, we know he's not teaching that we know he's not teaching that he's pointing to something so much greater he's pointing to his own death for our sake look at verse 24 with me and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many well, just as the bread represents the body of Christ, so the cup represents his blood. And throughout the Old Testament, in order to have a covenant established or ratified, there had to be the shedding of blood. And you can't, the shedding of blood is a reference to what? Death. That's the idea. The lamb didn't say, okay, here's blood, I'm going to leave and go back and eat grass. He died. He died right there in the hands of the priest who held him and bled him out. And that's the, the teaching here. That blood ratifies the covenant. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9. We have to get to Hebrews sometime in this passage, don't we? Because uh, the writer of Hebrews is, is exalting Christ all the way through that he is better. He is the greater in all circumstances. And here he is the greater lamb the greater covenant keeper, and so forth. But we know that covenants were ratified by blood. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 with me. Follow along. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Whew. What a statement. 
For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who has made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Something died in its place, right? The lamb died in its place, only to withhold the judgment of God until Christ came. Verse 19, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and of the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you, and you know the rest of this that goes on to point to the Lord Jesus Christ that his blood now ratifies this new covenant. And so as he's holding this cup, think about this, as he's holding this cup, this, this new covenant now, it's going to require bloodshed of a spotless lamb, the final lamb. It has to be the son of God. And so he's, he knows that to ratify this covenant means his death. And yet the disciples are still oblivious to what he's about to do. Now, the prior covenant required lamb after lamb after lamb, year after year. Look at chapter 10, just skipping along here just a little bit. Verse t- 1 of chapter 10, for the law, since it was a shadow of good things to come. And what a, what a great thing, right? I, 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 I hurt for friends who want to live in the shadow of what God taught isn't that sad? There's lots of people that want to keep this and keep that and, and try to live in just the shadow of what God has and not the very present thing that God has given us, Jesus Christ. But notice that it's a shadow of good things to come, not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifice which they had offered continually by year, uh, year by year, making perfect those who draw near. It was impossible. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered because the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a conscience of sin. Why did they do it over and over? Because it didn't take away their sin. Romans 3 pictures, particularly in the Greek language, that God demonstrated it and he held back his wrath. It's, there's a word in there that we have, what we get our word for a dam or a hold back a body of water. He held back during this time until Christ could come held back his wrath and judgment. But it had to be offered over and over, verse three. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin year by year. Every time you brought that lamb, you had to say, I'm a sinner. I have no hope. I pray that this lamb's blood pardons me for a while. This is what they did. Verse four, for it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. And we would say it this way, it's impossible for your repetitious confession, whether in a booth or to some man or whatever else, to ever get you cleansed before God. There is only one who can cleanse you. And you go to him. He is the one, once and for all, who prepares you to be in the presence of God by cleansing you, forgiving your sins, and dressing you in his own righteousness so you can stand in all eternity. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the verse goes on to say, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I'm back in Mark 14. Keep your finger there in Hebrews 10. I'm coming back there. But he says in this text, in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many. 
I, can you see the scene? Jesus is holding the cup in front of his disciples. His description is priceless, isn't here? This is my blood. Notice the personal pronoun here. It's pointing to his own blood, not some animal. No one else could ratify this new covenant. He's pointing to his own provision for us. What an amazing scene that was, especially as the disciples who received the Spirit after his resurrection looked back at this and said, wow, he was speaking about his own blood. He uses the word covenant. Your, some of your older translation, translations may say testament. And it speaks of Christ's ability to seal and ratify the deal. I can do this. I can go to my father with my own blood. Um, earlier in, in Hebrews 9, or just before we got to 10, in between that section, you see where he comes with his own blood into the presence of God. This is the blood that will ratify this new covenant. And so the sacrifice of blood established the Mosaic uh, covenant, and so his blood now establishes this new covenant. His blood was so perfect, so righteous, so just, it only needed to be done once. God's covenant with Israel was not a voluntary agreement between two equals. When you think about it. It was initiated by Jehovah God. He set the terms. He laid out the covenant. And Israel voluntarily agreed to obey it. And we know how that went. But the new covenant was also the divine work. It, it, it's description and conditions are stipulated by God and offered to men, but now solely based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not on whether they could keep it or not. It's so beautiful. This is why it's a new commandment. The first one was pointing, all pointing towards the second. And someone had to come and finish it and complete it and fulfill it. So that same person, Jesus Christ, could usher in the new. By God-given faith, think about this. I want you to think about this. By God-given faith, fallen people like ourselves believe in our hearts the truth of this new covenant and we are redeemed by a precious blood of the Lamb and it can only be the Son of God. That's what happens. God grants you faith. You repent of your sins. You believe in maybe the simplest form that that Jesus hung on a cross and bled for you. And he, he, he has opened your mind, even to that point before that, he had to open your mind to believe in that. And God ushers you into his new covenant. And he covers you with his son's blood. Think about this, not only at that moment, but for all of eternity. That's how perfect the sacrifice was. That's how perfect it was. On the cross, Jesus died this perfect substitutionary death. And the Bible here, clearly in Mark tells us that he did it and he was poured out for the many, for the many. Christ's death was not universal. It had the ability to. His death was so great it could save every person ever born, but it was not. Jesus said, all that you give me, Father, I'll lose none of them. The ones that you know before the foundations of the world, which, praise God, we don't know, I will receive them, I will keep them, and I will lose none of them. I'm going to do it through my blood on the cross. What a precious thing. So our Savior, Jesus Christ, takes this penalty of God's wrath, and he's 
fully satisfying God's justice, divine justice. It's completely satisfied. Can can you get your mind around that? You're going to hold this bread and cup in your hand in just a moment. God is completely satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He does not reaccount your sins over and over and over. He has forgiven them. Believers, act like it. Live like it. We don't run back and live in the past as, as forgiven people. We may have consequences from the past, but we do not live in the past. Our Savior's forgiven us. And we press on for that upward calling, as Paul tells us. Because his blood did what we could never do. You still may have your finger in Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me at verses 4 and following. We already saw that it's impossible for blood and bolt and goats to take away our sins. And so therefore, because that's true, because the old covenant couldn't save us, it only pointed towards the one who could, right? Therefore, when he came into the world, he said that son is having this conversation with the father and it's recorded here. And if you don't believe in the inspiration of scriptures, this is one verse that ought to change your mind. Who's recording this stuff? (laughs) He says, well, who's he speaking to? Look, sacrifice and offering you, that's the father, have not desired. Whoever wrote, recorded Hebrews was purely inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing statement here. I, I never can, I use a statement for the teaching and inspiration of scriptures, <laughs> not only just soteriology, uh, but bibliology as well, right? But listen what he says, you, you did not desire this father. This was not your goal, but a body you have prepared for me. That was the plan from the beginning. Some people say, well, They just couldn't keep the old covenant and it all fell apart so God had to come up with something new. Oh my goodness. That couldn't be farther from the truth. The Lord had always planned Jesus to come in in his incarnation, live a perfect sinless life and die. He reminds him again in whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you take no pleasure. And then I say behold I've come in in the scrolls of the books written about me or written of me to do your will. And then he just goes on and on, and you'll see it. He says he had to replace the second, finish the second to usher in, put, uh, finish the first to usher in the second. What an amazing verses that remind us of his sacrifice. So pure, so holy, so completely accepted by Almighty God that the veil is ripped between God and man. <laughs> Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 at the death of Christ the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split no more is there a division between God and man in fact all of my believers now are believer priests they can walk into the very presence of God at any time isn't that fascinating and then if that is enough he destroys the temple in 70 AD because that was their next idol he takes it out and it's never been rebuilt. See, we celebrate the satisfying blood work of the Lord Jesus Christ every time we come to the table. Last thought, verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it new in the kingdom. Well, the words of Jesus in this verse are confirmed with this solemn oath, right? In the original, there's a double negative. I will no longer, no not, I will not, I will not, I will not do this until I come again. 
until I come again. See, Jesus knew he was about to depart. He knew he was about ready to lay his life down. And this statement makes it clear that Jesus was looking forward to his return. See, sometimes we look at the, the table and we go, oh, this is all about the death of Christ. When you study this passage, it is not only about his death, it is about his return. And this verse is so precious because I'm not gonna drink of this till I'm back here again. I'm gonna set my feet on this earth and we take it together. Traditionally, there were four cups in the original Passover meal. First cup meant a thanksgiving that you brought us out. Second cup meant that you saved us from bondage and slavery. Third cup, redemption. You redeemed us. That's what he's holding when he says, this is my my blood given for you, right? The fourth cup was a cup of what they call the cup of consummation, the return. This was was the promise that God would dwell with them and they took this cup knowing that God was gonna come and live among them. And so you can imagine at this moment, there, after he's held this cup of redemption up, and maybe this fourth cup is on the table, and, and this is my own thinking, that he's not seemingly not drinking it, but he's referring to it as he says, I'm coming back. My messianic kingdom will be set up. I'm going to return. And what amazing truth that was. That we, his children, someday will sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And I don't have time to go there, but you read it in Revelation chapter 19, 1 through 9, and worship at the fact that one day you and I will sit at the table. And we'll partake of this. Until he returns, believers now globally, around the globe, we do this often. We do this often. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What? Until he comes. That's the Lord's table, his death and the promise of his coming. Do you see that now? So often we thought, well, this is just a remembrance of Jesus dying. No, no, this is a remembrance that he's coming back as well. Many of you know that J.I. Packard just passed away this last week at age 93, so many of us were profoundly um, moved by his writings. Uh, Probably the book that stirred my heart, the earliest I can remember reading a, a good theological reading was Knowing God, of course. I think every Christian should read that. But Mr. Packard was known for taking daily walks, and this is why he took his walks. Listen to this. He simply walked every day so that he could contemplate heaven. He did a walk every day. He thought about a lot of things. He was a great teacher and great writer and so forth, great theologian. But every day he walked a short walk just to contemplate heaven. He said this. I should like to be remembered as one who point it to the pasture lands. Boy, that hits me. <laughs> oh, I thought, oh, what a great statement. See, he knew that the resulting work of the death of Christ meant his return. If he doesn't die, he doesn't return. And so they're linked together. And then look at verse 26. After all this happens and this promise of this new kingdom, after this they sang a hymn together. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Passover was concluded now, and Jesus and his disciples sang a song. Traditionally, they sang Psalms 115 through 118. That's one of of several they did, that one. But I think the highlights of Psalm 118 are incredible. They're about the loving kindness of God, and I would like to just read you a few of those verses, and then we'll take communion together. Psalms 118, verse 1 through 9. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those, this is us, who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Then they went out. And the Bible says that Jesus goes out and crosses the Kindred Valley and he goes up on the Mount of Olives and he prays. And we're going to see that in these coming weeks. And it is amazing testimony of our Lord. Let's pray and then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for a reminder of this text. Thank you that Jesus came and ushered in the new covenant. The old covenant couldn't satisfy you. Man was weak. He could not keep the commandments. He could not reflect your character perfectly. He was fallen. And so, Lord Jesus, you came and reflected the Father perfect because you are one with him. And you fulfilled the covenant, the first one. And then through your blood, you ratified the second one. And now we live under that for eternity. That Jesus Christ alone has died for us and has saved us. Our hope is in you, Jesus, not in ourselves. And we want to remember that now on the table. In Jesus' name, amen.